iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Earlier this year, as part of my other podcast series, Tales of Silicon Valley, I drove out to the top of a hill in Portola Valley, not far from Stanford, to the house of Al Alcorn, who's a living legend of the tech industry. Alcorn was a pioneer of the video game industry. He was a co-founder of Atari and an early mentor to Steve Jobs. Yeah. This is an amazing view. Yeah, it's an interesting little neighborhood. As you drive down the road on the, the third house down with the big barbed wire and the big gate on the right, that's Vinod Koslaw, the guy with the uh, beach property, he, you know, yep. that guy, he's an interesting neighbor. Bill Hewlett, a Hewlett Packard, lived down at the end of the road here. He was an amazing man, and uh, uh, so there's some interesting, it's now full of billionaires, and we're like the poor folk up here on the hill. <laughs> Yo, technology, what is it all about? This is the last pod of 2020, and I counted, it's number 50. If you count the ones I we also did for uh, Tales of Silicon Valley, that is our biggest, baddest year ever. So thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to Chica, my tireless producer, for making this all this magic happen. Now, you may recall that last month we ran my conversation with Nolan Bushnell. Alcorn's partner in crime at Atari. Now, like Bushnell, Alcorn is a great storyteller, and he has some real doozies from the seminal years of Silicon Valley, including his early recollections of jobs at the height of hippiness. And really just uh, telling the story of the consumer tech industry as it was just finding its legs. Atari did it before anyone. And if you're wondering why we are doing a second Atari pod, because it's one of the most important companies in the history of the Valley. And only here on this pod do you get to hear from both of the guys who made it happen. Who created a company that, at its height, was bringing in more money than all of Hollywood combined. True story. So, without further ado, here is my conversation at a beautiful house at the top of a hill in Portola Valley with Al Alcorn. Can we start at the beginning? Beginning of 72. How about, can you tell me, like, how did you and Nolan first meet? Okay. I first met Nolan at Ampex Video File in 1968. I was a uh, student at Cal, Berkeley, where I worked in industry for six months and then went back to school for six months. And uh, that's where I met Nolan. Ampex Video File was a division of Ampex, the company that invented videotape recording, and uh, Nolan went off with his 
office mate Ted Dabney and developed this uh, game called, which became which was called Computer Space. For really, the first commercially commercial video game, and that was effectively a copy of Space War. Correct. And so, when he left, were you intrigued by what he was doing? Nolan and Ted went to work at this little company called Nutting Associates, which happened to be the only coin-operated game manufacturer west of the Mississippi. Nolan had this crazy idea for what looked like a space war. And one day, Nolan and Ted invited the old team at Videophile over to Nutting at lunch one day to see what he was doing. Yeah. And uh, we all sat. That was the first I saw of it, and I thought it was interesting. And, and I was... 23 years old. Cool, you know. And Nolan leaving Ampex at the time was taken aside by Charlie Steinberg, who was the head of the division, warning Nolan. It was a very foolish thing to quit a job at Ampex. Because Ampex was... Ampex was a big corporation, and you worked... And those are the last of the days where you worked for the big corporation. You had a career. You retired there, got a gold watch, a hearty handshake, and a pension. But Nolan had this fire in the belly to go be an entrepreneur out of Salt Lake City. He creates this thing, you see it. But the whole concept of a video game, that being the core of a business, that itself, was was that not a kind of an out there idea at the time? Not really. Uh, remember, I, I, I was at Berkeley in the 60s, so I'm slightly a bit of an anarchist, hippie, a life goal to make a whole lot of money uh, really wasn't out there at all, but I really loved engineering and all that. So, uh, yeah, I, eh, you know, it's like, it's different, you know, like, wow, kind of crazy to quit a job at Ampex at the time, you know, but then Ampex started to, uh, decline financially first time in their history. And, uh, Nolan and Ted came by one day to take me to lunch. They go, well, that's nice. They said, Hey, come to work with us. We're going to go start a company and do video games, not build, but design video games. Yeah. And I was young, you know, and I figured, wow, this was to be a lot more fun. Because, you know, at Ampex, I was an engineer in the engineering department. You didn't get involved with manufacturing, sales. But I reasoned that this would be fun, and it would probably fail. But I'd go back to Ampex. I could get a job. I was young and cheap and smart. So did it take much convincing? No. You got to realize too. This was in the in the seventies or the sixties, which went from like sixty five to seventy five. The Vietnam War was going on. There was the threat of nuclear annihilation, and so it was kind of like, well, hell, let's do it. What could go wrong? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then the adventure began. So you leave. Was that Atari that you walked into, or was no? It, it was Syzygy, S Y Z Y G Y, and Nolan offered me a thousand dollar a month salary, which was I was making twelve hundred a month at Ampex. But what the yeah. hell? Uh, my needs were very simple at the time, and ten percent of the stock, which I thought was worthless because you know, stock, what's that? But it would be fun. Syzygy was me, Ted, Nolan, and then Ted's brother and uh, Cynthia. Nolan's babysitter that acted as our part-time receptionist. Yeah, I had a little office, and Nolan gave me this story about he had a contract from General Electric. We did have a contract from Bally, which was the dominant coin-operated game manufacturer in the world. Pinball giant, no? Pinball, slot machines, occasional driving games. 
and uh, they were dominant and uh, they were smart. Now I realize more about business. You keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And here was this company, Nutting Associates, really Syzygy, Nolan and Ted, that had created this weird new kind of coin-operated entertainment. It wasn't terribly revolutionary or compelling, but it was new. And so they were smart. Give them a contract and we can now keep, keep our eye on them. We had a contract to design a video game, a pinball machine, and some kind of arcade attraction. And Nolan worked on... Two things. Nolan actually worked on a two-player computer space that Nutting as he'd promised Nutting Associates. And he worked on a pinball machine, which was the wide playfield machine. And I was building, designing Pong. Nolan told me the story that he had this contract from General Electric that was to build a very simple ping pong game. It was going to be a home game, which meant it had to be really, really cheap. Okay, well, I started building. I'll just build it, see if I get it to work, and then we'll see about maybe the cost or something later. Nobody ever came by from GE or wrote us a letter or called. Okay, I'm getting paid. Uh, Most of the time, we were pretty thinly funded. We had no venture capital money or any of that stuff. We had this route because Nolan had Nolan and Ted, with the revenue royalties they got from computer space, bought pinball machines and driving games so they had a route in the area maybe they had 30 or 40 machines mostly pinball machines it was fun because i could play the pinball machines in the back room when i was thinking you know need some time off that's what do you mean they had a route so the way the coin operated business worked an operator would be somebody uh, that bought the machines and convinced a location, a restaurant, a bar, a bowling alley, to put them in, and they would split the revenue with them. So if the thing made $100, $50 would go to the store, $100 would go to you. And that's what happened. And and, and as an operator, you could move the machines around because the machines typically had a life of three to six months on location. So if you moved them around, you could keep them going. And was that what was funding operation that added cash flow that did yep i guess i mean (laughs) whatever i i was i was kind of focused on uh doing this uh this pong thing this pong thing and And uh, so you create pong yeah nolan and ted were both great engineers but this was probably a digital product which was uh really in nolan's wheelhouse and me i mean i you know, I'm fresh out of college. I want to be an analog engineer, but they force-fed me digital stuff, thank God. And so I was in both camps, so I could do that, and I knew a lot about television. I was just had all the right skills in the background right. to pull this off, I guess. And so how long did it take you to, to do to Probably about three months, something like that. And then what happens? I'm putting this thing together, and I'm kind of depressed because it is actually a failure, to be a consumer product, if you're going to sell something for $100, let's say, the cost of the parts that go in, the material cost of the parts that go in them, has got to be like $25 max yeah. to allow for all the markups for distribution. And back in those days, the integrated circuit chips, 7400 Series Logic, they were about maybe $0.35 cents a piece, something like that on the average. So I had like 70 chips in there, so I'm already busted the budget. This is just the chips. I got the printed circuit board, the power supply, the, you know, this is not going to work. But no one didn't seem too perturbed by this. Well, okay, I'll keep on going. And, 
and the basic game, I got the paddles up, I got a ball moving, but it was very, very boring at one speed. Jesus, this is no fun. So I got the idea to add the ball to speed up after a certain number of hits. Right. You know, and I started adding things into it to make what I seemed to be fun to play. I'm sure Nolan and Ted had suggestions and all that. And But again, it was like, well, it's, it's not going to be a consumer product at the end. No one said, you know, well, it's got to have sound. And I'm going, oh, my God. I'm already way over budget. You're going to throw more parts into this thing. Got to have sound. So no one said, I want to hear the roar of a crowd of thousands cheering. Ted said, I want to hear boos and hisses. Well, I did not know how to create either one of those effects with digital circuits. So I said, I'll I'll go right back. And I just poked around in the circuit sync generator for tones that were already there. And uh, pulled out the sounds. And I said, there it is. There's your sounds. And, and was it, what was the sound? The little beeps, oh, yeah. the thing, yeah. you know. And uh, So it wasn't the roar. I said, there Nolan, wasn't the yeah, roaring crowd. If, if you want the roar, you go do it. Nolan said, well, let's put it out there and see if anybody can play it. We'll play it, you know. And so over the weekend, Ted built a cabinet. And uh, we put it out at one of our best locations, Andy Capps Tavern. Uh, when you say one of your best locations. Andy Capps uh, was a bar on uh, El Camino Real in Sunnyvale, that, uh, but the owner was Bill Gaddis. was a really nice guy, ex-airline pilot, had a little alcohol problem, but that kind of goes with the territory, I, I'm told. And he was a good guy, so we could trust him. Whereas most other locations, there was always a little antagonism between us. We were really giving him a fair split. And so if something went wrong, he'd, he wouldn't get mad. He'd tell us, right. you know, and stuff like that. So... So you put it into Andy Cab's Tavern, and then you just pour yourselves a couple of beers? and Yeah, we bought a couple of beers, sit there and watch and see if somebody play it. And hey, a couple of guys played it. And uh, I remember Nolan asking one of the guys, what you think? Oh, yeah, it's a great game. Guy says, I know the people that designed this game. <laughs> yeah, keep the BS for your girlfriends, you know. This, uh, okay. <laughs> So uh, so we left, you know, and it was, seemed to be working because that was the other thing. It was so crudely built. Did you walk out of there feeling like, ah, oh, we're on to something? No, no, no. I walked out of there saying, I wonder how long this is going to work before it breaks, you know. And I had no idea. Within a couple of weeks, within a week or two of it being there, it broke. So I went out there after work to go fix it. They had a laundromat coin box on the side. So I opened that up, which what you would do is open up the coin box and give yourself a flick the micro switch and give yourself a free game to see why it, you know, see what was going yeah. on. And the thing worked fine. The problem was I opened the coin box up and all these coins fell out because it was completely overloaded with coins. So I, I did the split, took Arshier back to work the next day and dropped him on Nolan's desk. I said, so here's the problem. The goddamn thing's making too much money. Nolan goes, really? Really? Okay. So you just literally drop a bag of quarters on his desk. Something like that, yeah. yeah. About that time, Nolan had to go back to Bally to do a dog and pony show. They were, you know, what's going on? How's, you know, what's new? Yada, yada, yada. Now, Nolan had this problem because he had, he owed them a video game. He owed them a pinball machine and some arcade attraction. I think Nolan realized that I don't think I want to give, this is my view, but Nolan has his view, I think is different, but I believe, I imagine that he didn't really want to give this game because he knew this was a hit. He knew it. And uh, so, and so, but there was a problem. So he basically comes back and I remember sitting at Andy Capp's Tavern 
after he comes back, Ted and me and Nolan, and Nolan's telling us about the trip. And I don't know if he gave the story that they didn't want it. I have to say there were other operators that would you know see it, and 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 I they sensed there was something going on. They could tell that this was a popular machine. I think anyway. He, I think he convinced Bally they didn't want it, convinced Williams they didn't want it or whatever. And so he comes back and tells us, Ted and me, that we're going to go in the business of making video games, and, you know, manufacturing. And Ted and I immediately said, no, 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 that's not the plan. We're going to be engineers. We're going to, we're going to design games and we're going to give them to Bally or other companies and we're going to cash royalty checks. And But Nolan, I believe realize that the money's in the manufacturing the games not getting royalty checks so he overrode us and basically said this we're going to do this so what'd you think i i was kind of cringing because this was going to be a whole different world of manufacturing and all that other stuff and, and i kind of like hardware is hard right from a financial standpoint what nolan did was remarkable we had no equity. We had no venture capitalists talking to us. The banks wouldn't even give us a line of credit because back in those days, the coin-operated business had a very dark reputation of uh, mobster kind of guys fighting over their territory. And what they would do, I found out what they would do, they'd go to a restaurant who typically didn't have enough money and let us put a cigarette machine in and we'll give you a $5,000 loan or two thousand, whatever, and we'll just take all the money from the machines that we put in. And that sort of uh, was how it would go. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be in any of that. Okay, we'll see. I'll play, go along with the gag. And getting into manufacturing was a whole, you know, having to, how do you build things in production? How do you test them? We knew nothing. We were engineers. What happened was the Pong cost us to build somewhere around five or six hundred dollars each? Each, and they were selling. We were selling them for like a thousand bucks cash up front, and they were so hot, so popular that the distributors would pay us cash up front. Now, the food chain where their manufacturers sold to distributors. Every major city had two or three distributors, and they would sell to operators. The operators would own the machines and they'd put them in the location and split the take. That's how the ecology worked. And we did not invent the coin-operated business. That had been around since the Depression, and that's important. So there was this entire food chain people knew about. Put a coin in, you're selling two or three minutes of entertainment. We just had a, a video game instead of a pinball machine. The distribution ecosystem already existed. It was already there. Very important. People wanted to play coin-operated entertainment. And Nolan wisely chose the aesthetics to be very straightforward and simple, no naked ladies on the side of the machine. So and it, indeed, it wound up attracting women. And I think one of the reasons for success, it was a two only a two-player only game. And so uh, women could compete with men and, uh, you know, socialize. And I think that helped its success. Date night. Yeah. So from that moment, we so you, had, you go to Andy Capps, to fix the machine, you realize that it's full quarters. From that moment to when you're pumping these things out, what's the time period from when it goes from kind of zero oh, to... It was really short. <laughs> I started in June of 72. Pong was designed October, November. That thing with Andy Capps probably happened in November. We started building them around 
January, you know, I mean, the first dozen were real exciting because Ted decided to buy a truck and drive him down to L.A., our big customer, and tires ran out. We thought he'd driven to Mexico with them or something. It was it was a catastrophe. They eventually got there, but uh, and then we realized we didn't have enough room in this little two or 3,000 square foot little shop that we had. So we rented, Nolan rented a, a roller skating rink up the up the street. And we hired people from God knows where. So can you talk about the workforce? Because yeah. it wasn't exactly um, your typical, what we think today maybe as a Silicon Valley workforce. <sighs> we just hired young people. We had a lot of uh, colorful people, shall we say. We had this factory, I can still see in my mind, this uh, old hardwood roller skating ring floor filled with uh, pawn cabinets. Another stroke of luck, by the way, was the cabinet manufacturer. There just happened to be this big company in Santa Clara near us that was a, a, a cabinet manufacturer, but they were on hard times and they had the right equipment and all those facilities and uh, boom, they knew how to build a structurally strong enough cabinet. The display was a, a monitor, a television set from Hitachi, cost 70 bucks at the hardware store. And we got some really colorful people in there. I can remember people moving parts down the floor uh, on skateboards, you know, and that's probably not something you would see at a real company at Intel or Fairchild or Ampex. We didn't have any like documentation because we were just building one thing. So people knew how to build that one part of the thing and it became chaos when we had a new machine come in. Because there was so much profit in it, we made so many mistakes. We had so many things go wrong, but we could mass, we could cover it up with the profits. We just pick it up and keep going. There was one component called the 555 timer, which still exists today. It's a little chip. It's very popular, very cheap. But the Signetics had just designed those things, and I think I had four of them in the part, in the pawn game. Uh, Nolan and I were reading the trade rag one day after, after five o'clock, and story about the 555 timer in Signetics, and uh, mentioned how many they'd built. And we're looking, what? We've got half of their production in our warehouse. That can't be right. So we picked up, went over to the roller skating rink and looked in the warehouse and there were none in the warehouse. And some bad people had put a plant in our stock room and were the parts we were buying the same parts over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> you know, things like that happened. A lot right. of little things like that. And we were copied. That's the other thing. Everybody, all these other little Aquinot manufacturers, like this was the hit. And yeah, they, so how long did it take for the copycats to Oh, well, they up? showed up within about three or four months. They didn't know what they were doing because they were used to building things that went bang and bump and, you know, and video games, you know. <laughs> so, but, but we had another guy that was giving us buying circuit boards from. Turns out he was selling circuit boards to us and to our competition, just take our logo off. And, oh, yeah, a lot of that stuff was going on. Uh, we had a patent, but so what? Our competition were not big, heavy-duty corporations that you could sue them. It's not going to work Well, because it sounded like, I mean, it's obviously it's a very clever engineering, but it wasn't like a missile control system. No, I mean, I mean, it was, it yes, it was engineering. brilliant engineering, but you could, but I didn't mask with the parts. So you got a circuit board, you, here's the 7404 goes in here, put the parts in, solder it up, and boom, you got a video game. Our strategy was to, we could do something the other guys could not do, and that was invent the next game. 
One of the things I think is interesting about this, the story, is that it feels like Atari had several stories or several phases. Mm -hmm. It was like, boom, almost bust. Mm -hmm. Boom, almost bust. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So when did the first almost bust happen and then you move on to the next boom? Well, I I don't know if a bust, but one of the the first real hiccup was... You know, we're selling as selling as fast as we could make them in America. And did you make it on, I don't know, Time Magazine cover or anything like that? I don't know. Yeah. I, I asked Nolan, he'll know. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. We were getting Bible tracts in the mail, which is uh, religious. Sorry? You, you get, open the envelope and there's a little clipping from some uh, church publication telling us about getting straight with God or something. And I guess we were the devil, (laughs) the devil's vending machine. I don't know. But that was a weird thing. And then Nolan had subscribed to a clipping service. Man, it was all over this, the story about Pong. So, you know, it was, we got free publicity. There were two or three distributors in every major city and they were focused along the lines of jukebox, a Rockola, Seaberg, and Williams or somebody and three different. And so you could get one distributor in every city, but you couldn't get the other two. So Nolan was like, God darn it. You know, cause that's where the copiers were going. The copiers go the other two. So Nolan said, I'm going to do my own GE hot point. General electric had a appliance line called hot point, which is a brand, same thing. They yeah. just had a different name on them so they could sell them elsewhere. So Nolan says, I'm going to go with that. And his neighbor his neighbor was Joe Keenan. Joe was a, a, a sales guy for IBM and computer stuff. He started Key Games, and we gave him one of our engineers, uh, Steve Bristow, our number two guy, and let them go off with some of our games. And it was funny because Nolan would tell our distributors, those bastards over at Key Games, they stole one of our best engineers, and, and they love the story. And, of course, they were down the street, so when they come out, they'd go over to Key Games, and so we knew who was over there. If anybody had wanted to look, they would have noticed that you know, the corporation could look it up in the state of California corporations. Uh, Nolan and I were on the board of the company, you know, but it was great. Right. We would just fight with them. And, and, and at the trade show it was hilarious because we go to the, the big consumer electronics show. We had a booth that was the, it was not the consumer show. This was the MOA, Music Operators of America, the coin-operated industry trade show in Chicago at the Conrad Hilton. And Key, and Key Games was over there. And, yeah, those bastards. <laughs> so it was kind of fun just having fun with our customers. Right. And right. it worked. Now we had two-thirds of the market. And then when we really, really did come close to closing the doors, it became very valuable to have that operation over there. The people, the team that in a new business that gets you to a million dollars in sales will not get you any further. You've got to replace them with seasoned execs that can get you to the next level to a hundred million dollars in sales. So Nolan hired some players out of my opinion, B team players. The short of it was they just ran the company to the ground. They screwed up in every aspect. The banks stopped loaning us money. They couldn't build a machine. It's funny because I've learned that there's always a hostility between manufacturing and engineering, between research and engineering, and you have to manage that. And uh, to give a group that was brilliant researchers the go-ahead to design a a street-approved product was a disaster. And I remember Nolan at one point was in in tears. We, we saw the company was going to fail. It was, 
it was it was dying it was going to die because uh, because because these guys had ruined our accounts they had made a machine we couldn't sell we were out of production uh you name it it was and because by that point pong was Oh, Pong was history. We'd gone through a few games. We had new Multi-pong, machines. Multi-Pong, Quadra-Pong, all the Pongs. Yeah, right? all those. But, you know, the driving game was clearly going to be a great game, but we couldn't make it work in production. And so Ron Gordon came back and basically gave Nolan the courage, said, let me take care of this. And I was on sabbatical, basically. My mother was dying. So I said, fine, I'll go off and do this. And yeah, but... And uh, got me to come back, put the bright people back in the place, and got Key Games merged back in. Key was sitting out there saying, hey, too bad Atari's going to die. We're doing fine out here. They were just happy to have us die. And no, you're coming back. So Joe Keenan then became the CEO. Nolan was the chairman of the Joe was the president or whatever, CEO. Nolan was the chairman of the board. And I was VP of engineering again. And I personally sat down and redesigned the driving game, so it was buildable. And, gotcha. Uh, you know, and uh, and then we got out of that, you know. But but that was pretty pretty critical because about shortly after that, I got tired of being. I'm 24, 25 years old, and I'm managing. I'm the VP, which is you're not doing any engineering anymore. You're managing. It's more like babysitting and you know managing people and projects and time and budgets and not fun stuff. And, yeah. And Nolan had always fought, had wanted to do a home version, and I knew that I could not do it. It had to be on a single chip. And back in 1973, that was not something that was easy to do that was done at semiconductor companies. But I had hired an engineer, Harold Lee, that was a chip designer and a logic designer and a biker, (laughs) a few other colorful characteristics. And he knew... And I hired him because I wanted him to be, he did arcade design for a couple of machines, but I hired him because I, I wanted him to design a custom chip that I could put in our designs that would make it impossible for the copiers. You couldn't buy that part. That was right. the plan. And, and after a few months of this, six months maybe, uh, Harold came to me and said, you know, it's not going to work. Your technology is growing so fast. By the time you got a chip done, it would be obsolete but he said, but I think I could put the original simplest game ever, Pong, on a chip. And I said, let's do it. The fact that Nolan wanted it was nice, kept him off my back. But it was also a challenge. It was exciting. The home Pong, what did, because I had a 2600. Uh-huh. What did home Pong look like? Was Ooh. it just like a Ooh. box? Yeah, it's an ugly black plastic box with two knobs on it that controlled the paddles a little speaker for the sound and a cable that went off to your tv oh set. so so you controlled it from one box ami american microsystems they're they're no longer in business but they were down in silicon valley they built the first uh, chip and i remember when that chip came back and we put it in the plas in the prototype circuit to see if it was going to work and it pretty much worked it was like I, that was a weird feeling. It was felt like a dog chasing a car. What do you do when you catch it? We had no plan right. beyond that. And a couple of things happened. One, called up Sears and uh, got them to... Biggest pay. retailer in America, basically. At the time, yeah. We figured, because again, there was no 
consumer electronics going on in Silicon Valley. It was all selling to uh, computer manufacturers on the East Coast and some military. And these, this technology was high-speed NMOS, where calculators and watches were low-speed CMOS at the time. So this was uh, a little groundbreaking from a technology standpoint to put the high-speed logic chip uh, running at 3.5 megahertz. We found a place to go sell it. Sears, lots of stories there. This other company, Cinertech, had popped up, uh, a new startup, a semiconductor manufacturer, small company, and they were smart. And when you're in that business, you got to understand your customer. Does your customer have a good product or are they just blowing smoke? They said, can we, we give us a try to build this? So, okay. It wasn't the best design chip ever, but I didn't care. <laughs> it worked, okay? So they were working. We go to AMI. We Joe Keenan and I go to AMI to negotiate how many a contract to build some of these chips for us. They were successful. And they could build them. They know what it costs. We had the price. And they wouldn't do it because they had heard we had just come out of this financial disaster. We were on credit hold with everybody. And uh, now we were making money with our arcade stuff. And they were scared. And we explained to them that not only were we not on credit hold anymore, that we had this contract with Sears and Roebuck. And Sears had a signed purchase order, which was the real deal. And uh, they backed us up. It was a VP of finance, the sales guy who was going nuts because he was seen as commission vaporized and a couple other people. And they're arguing in the room. And Joe said, you know, whenever we have this kind of problem at Atari, we kind of go off on our own and huddle and talk about it. Why don't you guys? He says, look, you tell us how many you want to build for us. We'll take any amount. You just up to you. They came back with some relatively small number, like 50,000 or something. And uh, we said, okay. Then went over to Center Tech and put an order in for the rest <laughs> so right. we were fine and poor center tech was like oh, the sales guy uh, <laughs> that's funny but when we did one of the famous demos at sears because quinn was the buyer quinn was the buyer at sears god bless him no one else would have done this he took a huge risk it was not sears like to do this uh, uh, to take up a product like this so quickly. Yeah. He knew more than we did. He knew how well it could sell. And, and so but we had to go pitch it to the execs. I'm in there in the 37th floor of the Sears Tower in Chicago with a prototype box. Uh, we didn't have the plastic working. So the box is a wooden carve-out model of what the plastic is going to look like bolted to this box underneath the box were the very wire wrap panels that my wife had wire wrapped with like 200 chips in them and I hooked it up to a tv they loaned us and it got nothing I had it working on channel three back in those days you know yeah 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 and uh I found out that they broadcast channel three at the top of the Sears tower <laughs> a little interference so I had to open the bottom of this prototype up while our sales marketing guy Gene Lipkin was uh, uh, doing a slinging bullshit, and uh, I retuned it to Channel 4 to get it to work, bolted it back up, and whew, did the demo, and Carl Lind, the, uh, one of the bosses, uh, said, looked at me, he's from the South, his previous claim to fame was the air-conditioned electric blanket, you may have heard of. Uh, the air-conditioned electric blanket? Yes, sir, in the South, that was a big... Thing, I, I guess. have never heard of the air well, conditioning blanket. I don't think it was a big success. But nevertheless, <laughs> armed with that experience, here we're bringing in a video game to Sears and Roebuck. Mr. Lind looked at me and said, Mr. Alcorn, 
You're telling me that you're going to take that rat's nest of all those wires in there and you're going to put it on a little piece of silicone the size of your fingernail? I go, yes, sir. He says, how are you going to solder the wires to it? You know, I'm in the wrong place here. This, <laughs> I felt like jumping out the window. You know, I'm high rise. Oh, boy. Uh, anyway, we got past that. And uh, another funny story was they'd held the Christmas catalog for us. So Nolan and Joe were back there dealing with business back at the Sears Tower. And Tom Quinn had them down at the second or third basement cafeteria where all the Sears employees worked, uh, had lunch. <clears throat> and they're sitting at this big communal table. And uh, it came to pass that Nolan said, you know, with Atari. And there was a guy there that said, oh, you're the Atari guys. You go, yeah. <laughs> he says, you know, he said, what are you doing? So I'm the traffic manager. I watch all this stuff goes by. He said, I want you to know, the last time we held the Christmas catalog for a product, it was the Marvin Glass slot car set, the first home slot car set ever made. And we sold 50,000 of them. Problem was none of them could get past the first turn. We had to buy all of them back. When Joe and Nolan came back, I remember Joe coming to me, this is going to work? <laughs> he says, we're risking the whole company on this thing, which we did regularly. Yeah, what could go wrong? <laughs> anyway, it, it worked. It worked. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Could you talk about a little bit about the, the culture of the company? I mean, it sounded like it was a really kind of loose, fun slash chaotic Yeah, what place. happened was... We were all young, okay? So, you know, I was, when we started Atari, I was like 24. Nolan must have been 26, 27, the old man. And uh, we didn't have any preconceptions. We did not say, you know, we're going to show up at 8 o'clock, punch a time clock or whatever. We wanted to be egalitarian and, hey, we're going to build this. You know, that you, you know, we were pretty open and why not? We were young and hired young people and we would have parties whenever We'd make a milestone of anything. We'd knock off work a few hours early and go over to a local park and get a beer keg, and that was always fun. I remember one time, <laughs> no, their attorney, attorney was a 
he was a real bummer. And uh, you can't do that. They'll be drinking on company time and they'll have a wreck and you'll get sued. So, ah, creative solution. We'll just pass out every employee as he left to go to this party. We gave him like 20 bucks to go out and buy their own booze. That way we're not liable, right? <laughs> Brilliant. A few of the guys pooled their money and got a keg, right? So we're at the park and this is a city park in Los Gatos. And the ranger comes by. You're not supposed to have be drinking in the park. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the junior rangers come by in a pickup truck. And what did he tell you? He says, he wants you to help us move this keg over to here where we're having the party. So the rangers are bringing the keg over to where we had the party. You know, it was that kind of crazy <laughs> stuff going on. Uh, and it was goal-oriented. I wasn't, we weren't trying to be. So we didn't put any rules in unless we had to, you know, unless we screwed it up somehow. And, oh, you better, okay, we better lock the file cabinet or whatever. And there was a... I was reading in Leslie's book, Don Valentine famously having to hold its breath through the uh, assembly line. Well, yeah, there was the odor of rope burning in the background, so to speak. I remember when Manny Gerard, the, one of the presidents of uh, Warner Communications, when they were sniffing around to buy us, I heard Manny, who was kind of like a, a, a real New York character, he was saying, what happens when you get 30 years old? Is there a pit somewhere you throw them into when they get over 30? There's nobody here over 30. And I'm going, huh? I don't know. It was a, it was a weird place. I remember one time I was getting other companies to build our chip for us. So I would talk that we had two companies. Uh, we asked, hey, Intel, would you be interested in making our chip for us? And this is not in the day when you did your own chips. This is, they did it. And like the idea that some brand, who the hell are these guys? And so one day, Bob Noyce, Andy Grove, and Gordy Moore show up on my doorstep at Atari. We're like in Los Gatos. the Intel guys. Yeah, the founders of Intel. Really, they're all great guys. They're looking around, and I've given them a tour. I was the only guy, only exec there. And I remember when uh, Gordy Moore and uh, Grove were playing. We had some uh, machines on free play in our little lunch area. And I tell Bob, hey, you better get these guys back to work. You're paying these guys a lot of money. Oh, let them have some fun, you know. And they chose not to bid on our part. <laughs> we told, It'll run in your factory because we knew, you know, our underground guy. We knew the engineers, some engineers that were working there. We knew they're supposed to be a big secret, but we knew it would run there. It would run yeah. anywhere. It was really loosey-goosey and you didn't buy it. I remember one of the execs at Warner later on asked me, I want to put some money in a semiconductor company. I said, Intel. So why? Because when we were building the pawn chip, they wouldn't bid on it. They were too smart to take it because they were not making much money off our part. And these guys were making a lot of money. So I wish I had bought some Intel. <laughs> Where was the hot tub, the famous hot tub? There were two hot tub things. One was the one at Nolan's house because Nolan lived up in the hills on Los Gatos. And he had a hot tub at the house. And back in the 70s, hot tubs were the thing. Everybody loved it. It was a hot tub. So we had a staff meeting in the middle of the day called really quickly at the hot tub. Okay, I'm happy. I'll go along with that. And Nolan and Joe had just come back from Warner, and they announced that Warner was going to buy us for $28 million or so. And all of a sudden, I'm going, because I'm every I'm waiting for the company to fail. Every year we're rolling the whole company and it's going to blow at some point. And all of a sudden, there's actual value in this thing. And I'm starting to do the little math. How much stock do I have? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm going to be a capitalist. <laughs> were you actually sitting in the hot tub when you found out? Yeah. Because yeah. you own 10% of the company then? Or was it? Apparently something like that. Yeah. Wow. A couple million bucks or whatever. Yeah. And then the story... 
which got out of hand. And I'm guilty of it because in a book I was quoted as saying Nolan called down and got needed some papers. Our attorney wouldn't get into the hot tub. He was that kind of guy. Nolan asked for Lori to come up. Uh, he was sweet on Lori at the time. Okay. And she did with the papers and he invited her to the hot tub and she wouldn't go. I mean, in the middle of the day, you know. End of story. I got as far as saying he invited her to the hot tub. All of a sudden that became the grits of a Me Too thing on Nolan. That, uh, that no, no. Once that stuff got out, because it was all about, it came about by a game developer conference a couple of years ago, wanted yeah. to give Nolan a Pioneer Award, and some people uh, armed with something they read in that book, which they assumed meant Nolan was dragging women to the hot tub, and the story got to the point where Nolan had a hot tub in his office at work, and we, oh, it's nonsense. And many of the women, unsolicited, came forward at the time and said it was the best place I ever worked. It gave me an opportunity, respect. We were young people who were in our 20s in the hot tub. That was the time in the 70s, you know. Yeah. And so that's what happened. And, and yeah, there were parties and, and people had fun. But I point out that we did do some cutting-edge engineering and we made some pretty impressive products. We couldn't have been partying all the time. We couldn't have been too drug-addled, you know. The other hot tub story is kind of funny. About the same time Warner bought us, we were moving into a new facility in uh, Sunnyvale by next to Moffat Park, next to Moffat Field down there on 101, in a beautiful new custom-built buildings for us. And uh, uh, when we built an engineering building, and we decided that the engineers, at a company like Atari, your assets go home every night. And so you want to treat these people well. And so we built this building, U-shaped building. So everybody had an office with a door and no more than two people in an office. And we had a little cafeteria down there. And we even put in a little uh, fitness center with a hot tub. And Nolan's, I think, was thinking if we'd give people a prospective engineer a tour and say, hey, Intel doesn't have a hot tub. I learned more about what was going on going to the engineering cafeteria after Warner bought us and put their people in. They had an executive dining room where they didn't have to mingle with those people. I'd be over in the engineering. I could find out what was really going on, you know, talking to the engineers. But one day, nobody was using the hot tub because this, this is not something people did at a company back then. They were shy. So Nolan, Joe, and I decided we're going to break in the hot tub. So one day about 4 o'clock, we go over and we're in the hot tub, and people are starting to come in now. We're getting kind of full. And I remember there was some young new hire engineer giving his mom and dad an illegal tour. He got him into the thing and going by and, and pointing to <laughs> And there's the chairman of the board and the VP of engineering and the president of the company. And, and I'm saying, hey, you're not supposed to be in here. <laughs> it's a secure area. Yeah, we had fun. From from your perspective, how how did the Warner thing come about? Well, we're going into the consumer business heavy. You know, the, because it, Home Pong happens, and that's Home your... Pong happened because of Sears. Yeah, we had one customer. You saw the potential vulnerability in having one distributor. Yeah, no one did. The idea is like, all right. The next thing, this the cartridge system. The business became developing new custom chips. Every game had to be a new custom chip. And that was a slog. All right, we'd figured out how to make the plastic, but that's going to take six months to do a new chip. And that's a real problem. And uh, it was 
obvious that you wanted to build a system that had a microprocessor and a cartridge so you could just have one base unit and a very cheap cartridge to change games. And Fairchild built the first system called the Channel F that was exactly that. The problem was it wasn't a very good game because the semiconductor company, Fairchild, was not a game company. And they had, worse yet, they had their own microprocessor, which was a dog. We use a 6502. We came in later. and uh, Oh, so I didn't realize they had already tried it. Oh, yeah. though no, it was on the market a year before, before us. You get working on this, effectively, kind of software-based games. So you start working on the 2600. That's around when Warner comes sniffing around. How does that kind of come? About? Yeah, yeah. Warner owned us at that point, but we no one knew how big it was going to be. You know. So and when did Warner buy you? November of seventy six. Four years after you started the company, basically. Yeah, and then in seventy six, June, I know for sure that was when we. Uh, introduced Pong or uh, uh, the VCS at that at the consumer show. Oh, so it was right before they bought you. They no, bought it you was right after. They bought us in '76, and we showed it in '77. Got you. I'm sorry, '77 in uh, the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago. But was the idea that you agreed to sell to them because you're just like, well, this is going to be again another kind of a well? They, we were already we were in the consumer business with the dedicated yeah. games. Yeah. And then, but they saw this there, and that was our future. And we had to keep quiet about it. We could not introduce it or talk about it and tell that show right. because of the deal we had cut with Magnavox. They sued us over stealing their stupid patent. When I spoke with Nolan, he said, basically I sold because I was just exhausted. He comes back, tells you we're selling the company for $28 million or whatever. You're like, oh. Yeah, it's a real thing. You buy this house. You buy a plane. You buy this cool car. Yeah. Is a bit of the fire in the belly gone at that point? No, because Warner, part of the reason we decided to sell to Warner was that they understood the hit music, hit record business and movie business. Very important. In that kind of a business, you're going to get two failures for every hit. Whereas at Procter & Gamble, if you make a failure, that's it. You're gone. It's over. They also understood that some of these young rock stars would uh, celebrate a little bit too much so they, they concocted a way to give us, pay us out over seven years so, and with a big bonus every year if we sold beyond a certain amount. If we sold more than I know, $30 million and the bonus was like 5% of the after-tax profits, you know, like who knew? Well, <laughs> that became a source of trouble later on because the bonus would be more than Warner was getting paid. So anyway, that's another story. But uh, uh, so they, but they, 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 they made sure that we had incentive to stay there. But then what happens is the same company that at one point thought you were brilliant, you're the unique, the unique knowledge and skills and everything. After a few years, you guys don't know anything about business, and we're going to bring in our pros to show you how to run a company. These pros didn't know anything about Silicon Valley games or startup high growth companies. Okay. It's your company. You go ahead and do it. And that was when Kassar came in and that. Yeah. From his viewpoint, that's the way you ran a company. I remember a good example <laughs> was I had hired early on to do the VCS. Harold Lee said, I can't do the chip. I know what you want there. You're going to need a, the best designer. It's a different technology. It's dynamic logic, da-da-da-da-da. You need J Minor. He's the best. So I got J Minor 
to our chip designer there and uh, and a small team. It's back around 79. Uh, I go in engineering building to find Jay and say hi. I haven't seen him in a while. And he's back there in a dark room working on chips. And I says, how's it going? I says, that's really bad. What happened? He says, they won't let me bring Mitchie in. The Jay was, he had this little cockapoo dog that was sitting on his lap or at his feet. Security came in and said, you can't have a dog in the place. And they go, what? So I said, okay, Jay, you come to my office tomorrow morning at nine o'clock and bring Mitchie. We'll take care of this. We went, we take Jay and the dog down to security and where they take the pictures and make the badges. We give Mitchie a badge. And then the security guy says, oh, I can't do that. So a little story went on explaining a who works for who and what kind of business we're in. And oh, okay. So I'll take a picture of the dog. What's this? What's the badge number going to be? We said zero zero zero. And uh, okay, so Mitchie got a badge. And uh, did he get a paycheck? You know, that's the sort of crap that went on. <laughs> and then he would then Ray Kassar would have his he he had like, oh well, if you're a VP, you get to drive a Chevrolet. I'm driving a freaking BMW, okay? You know, I'm not driving a Chevy. And he had a Rolls Royce, chauffeur-driven Rolls, with a custom, with his own parking spot, which was just, you don't have private parking spots in Silicon Valley, you know? Uh, anyway, yeah, I had a helipad uh, out there. We used to be a, ba- a volleyball court, tore that out, put a helipad. It was used like once. Uh, you know, it was that kind of craziness that went on. And then he, then the, then he pissed off the cartridge engineers. These guys were not stupid and they knew how much they were getting paid and they knew how much the cartridges were selling for and they could multiply and divide. They yep. wanted a relatively small royalty. And Ray, the famous quote was, uh, you're just a bunch of high strung prima donnas. And uh, I can, you know, like, okay. And uh, within a week or two, we had a T-shirt that said, I'm just a high-strung prima donna engineer from Atari. Everybody was wearing that. And then Ray had to wear it. And uh, he's not the kind of guy that wore T-shirts, I can tell you. That didn't look good in a T-shirt. And, uh, yeah, it was that kind of shit that went on. And then, of course, these guys, the best four guys spun out and started uh, Activision. Which today is worth like $35 billion. Whatever I mean, it's a massive. Company. God bless yeah. them; they deserved yeah, yeah. it. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, and Ray learned to. And I remember towards the end there was a there. He's passed away now, but there was an interview with him, uh, one of the last interviews ever he gave on the subject, and he admitted, uh, didn't use my name, but I tell him that you know because he'd say we're going to obsolete our own product with this new technology you're doing, and I explained to him. That in Silicon Valley, if you don't obsolete your own product, somebody else will. And he finally realized, admitted at the end, that, yeah, that's right. But he didn't get it at the time. And he thought, uh, him, his attitude was, ah, this VCS is going to last forever. And it's going to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what, was, yeah, what was the thing after the VCS? What was, what was going to obsolete the VCS? We didn't know. We had, right. it was that, you know, and, and I remember they actually had a, tried to have a meeting. They realized we had to have something eventually, but they had all these marketing guys that from Procter and Gamble and whatnot. And so they had a big planning session at the Doubletree Hotel down in Monterey. Nice place. And there must've been 50 people there, all these marketing people, a bunch of engineers and execs all going to figure out what the next game's going to be. This seemed like a very 
bad idea to me. And I was, I knew my time there was short. So I had gotten a, printed up a bunch of pages, a page with a list of idea killers, which is numbered one, two, three, like we don't do things that way. It hasn't been done before. All these usual typical reasons. I laid them, put one of those on everybody's desk at this whole thing before the show started before the thing happened. So when somebody would come up with one of these ideas, go, number 23, and everybody, yes, yes. And so uh, I really kind of disrupted the whole thing. I wasn't invited to any of those anymore. And I knew that nothing good was going to come out of something like this. I mean, it, it truly, if, the, if a, a camel was a horse designed by a committee, this was going to be a dinosaur. This is going to be ugly. So I knew the end it was on the wall. <laughs> you, know, you wonder why would you at one point think these guys are so unique and wonderful and then think they're incompetent? I mean, how can that be within a two-year period? But hey, anyway, I, I, uh, I got me this nice house. <laughs> and do you think, because I, I talked to Nolan about this, I'd love to get your perspective, um, this idea that the kind of the culture that... Because, I, again, going back to where we started, <clears throat> being the, this kind of first consumer-facing yeah. export, now, like Silicon Valley today, a lot of what happens here, or what it's most known for, are things like Netscape and Facebook Apple. and Uber and Apple and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Do you think what you guys, kind of your model in many ways, kind of became an archetype for those that followed in one way or another, whether they knew that or not? Certainly, I mean, in the general sense, certainly not in corporate governance, but in the sense of the business, I saw the business that, that I thought I was in was taking leading edge technology and disrupting an existing market, coin-operated entertainment, with high-speed digital logic used in mini computers and boring products like that. So sure, that's that became... Uh, uh, viable. And I think a good example was the little interaction with hiring this kid, Steve Jobs, who had this stupid idea for a home computer, you know, but hey, he was a tech. I was going to ask you about Steve Jobs. What, yeah. are, what are your... Well, yeah, it's back on the kind of culture, Yeah, you know, and uh, if I had been at Ampex and hired a guy like Steve Jobs, I would have been in trouble, you know, I mean, because he was uh, pretty humble. You know, he was a, a hippie, dropout of Reed College. Think about this. I'm a junior, in, an engineer, and all of a sudden I'm managing engineers that are older than me <laughs> and more seasoned and experienced. And this was weird, but okay, I learned, okay, I can handle that. First, it's pretty rough hiring somebody that's smarter than you. And uh, I realized that, hey, that's not so bad. It's, it's, they're all smarter than you. They can do the job, and I can sit back and take the credit for it, you know? I needed a tech. <clears throat> and I also had people like Harold who lived up in the mountains. And some of the great best engineers are living up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And the Atari at that time in Los Gatos was the first place you'd get to. So these guys would, would come in and say, I want to work for you. And I realized, I ought to talk to these guys because I, maybe I need to hire them. This was not the normal way you hired people. But Penny Chapler, a personality, came in and said, you want these guys? Here's one. And so Steve, drop out of Reed College. I'm thinking, is that an engineering school? No. But he had enthusiasm and a spark, and 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 I've been at right, Berkeley, so I wasn't afraid of hippies, you know. Uh, and uh, so we hired him. You know, he was part of that culture, although he was kind of the extreme edge, but still. So what did Jobs do? For you guys? He was basically doing a, 
uh, taken designs by a real engineer and he'd help build a prototype of that stuff and do soldering and stuff like that around the around the lab. Waz was kind of hanging around. Yeah, there. well, <laughs> Jobs had this buddy, Waz, that worked at HP, but Waz had this on a sleeping disorder, so he'd be up for a day or two. And Jobs needed to work in the evening because he got along with people better when they weren't there. Uh, so so Waz would come in in the evening, and we were building grand tracks and driving games out in the back or whatever, coin-op games, and Waz could go play them all he wanted because they were being burnt in. If he could break them, great. We'll fix them before the customer gets them. And uh, so he was hanging out, and I Waz was great to talk to. He was brilliant. Even though I never worked for Atari, but I guess it seems kind of odd having him back there in the secret lab. As we used to say at Atari, our only secret is that we have no secrets, and that's a secret. (laughs) Don't tell anybody. And then Jobs comes and says, oh, uh, hey, Al, I got to go off to India. I'm going to go off to India to meet my guru. Uh, Can I get some time off? I said, Sure. And then on the way, we had a, a problem in Germany with our coin-op distrib- distributor there. They couldn't. We would sell a kit of parts, the printed circuit board, and they would find a cabinet locally, a monitor, a coin mech, and all that stuff. But they could not get this one design to work. And I knew what the problem was. And they wouldn't listen to me. The German engineers wouldn't listen to me. So I figured, hey, Steve, he's going to, Ger- to India. Hey, Steve, I'll give you a one-way ticket to Germany. You do a day or two of uh, engineering for these guys. I'll show you how to fix this thing. And then you go off to India. It's got to be cheaper to get to India from Germany. Okay, sure. So Steve Jobs, the young Steve Jobs, he must have been, what, 18 or younger. uh, Had to be younger. Um, Gets off the plane, not wearing a suit and tie, and uh, proceeds to uh, fix their problem. Which, much to their shock and surprise, this hippie kid, and uh, he goes off to India. I remember calling him up a week or two later. Did he fix it? Yeah, 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 but very strange man. I said, well, look, if you have any more problems like that, you just call me up because got a lot more guys just like him that can fix your... Oh, no, we never had any more, more problems from them. <laughs> so that was Steve. And then about, ah, about three months later, Ron Wayne comes in and says, hey, Stevie's back. And I go, Steve who? Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Yeah, bring him in. And Steve, I wish I had a camera. I was an amateur photographer, but I never thought any of this stuff would be of any interest. He comes in wearing a saffron saffron robed, shaved head, barefoot, like a Hare Krishna, and gives me a Baba Ramdas book, Be Here Now, and says, can I have my job back? And I go, sure, yeah, why not? <laughs> and that's when uh, he and Waz had this stupid idea for a home computer. God damn it. And uh, I remember him getting him in a meeting with Joe Keenan. To, he wanted to say, would Atari want to build this? Nah, we don't want to build that. I said, there, there's no software. I mean, I'd like So he be- pitched the idea for Apple to you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Waz pitched the idea for Apple to HP. Both told him, you know, these are 18-year-old kids. Come on. What could happen? So he gets turned down by us and... Uh, HP, and what do we do? So we turned him on to Don Valentine, who had bought some, uh, been our first VC. And I remember Don coming back saying, they're in a garage. I go, well, isn't that the Silicon Valley story? He no, but there's like a car and a washing machine in the garage, you know. <laughs> Give him a place. <laughs> so they go and do that. And I get a call from Steve 
saying, Al, I got a problem. I, I, I can't get any of the 6502 microprocessors. I was getting them and I had set up Cinertech as a second source and uh, we would sell them parts. Most of the early Apple computers were parts from Atari uh, because they were the same chips, except for the well, microprocessor we weren't shipping at that point yet. So we would sell them to them like 10% over our cost, but made sure we got cash up front with those kids. So anyway, he tells me I can't get the microprocessor. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll set up a meeting. Cinertech won't even talk to us. They're 18 years old. I mean, come on. So they have a meeting. I get him in there, and I get a call a week later from Bob or Jack Paletto saying, hey, Al, that was the funniest meeting I ever had. Really? What happened? He says, well, these two kids come in. One's like this hippie Jobs guy, and the other's this Wozniak guy, and they're trying to uh, buy the parts from us. And... You know, they don't have an account, they don't have a credit card, they don't have anything, uh, no history, and uh, and Jobs is trying to negotiate a lower price. We're not even selling to them. Dwaz is trying to get Jobs to shut up, but kicking them under the desk, and Jobs is trying to get Waz to shut up, and he just slides off the chair and disappears under the conference room table, <laughs> and they pull him out, and they say, okay, kid, tell you what, we'll sell you, we'll give you a, a few thousand parts, but you got to pay us in 90 days, or we cut you off, and okay, okay. And, what do you uh, mean he slid off the chair? Well, Jobs is on this diet, this fruit diet, and he's like a waif. And he's trying to reach over and kick Waz, and he just slips off the chair. It was like a leather chair. <laughs> they lost him, you know, pull him out of there. Yeah, and that became, between us and Apple, the largest users of microprocessors in the world for two years. And that's how that account started. <laughs> really? Yeah. It was fun. That's the Silicon Valley, the beginning of Silicon Valley, you know. It was all these risk takers. All the semiconductor guys were characters. I mean, it was a small, kind of a small community compared to today. You yeah. Know? But and what do you think of where things are today? What I see talking to you guys and reading up a bunch and doing research and seeing where we are today, it feels like Silicon Valley, as we know it, kind of started Xerox Park and these things before, but it really kind of grew up and blew up around this idea of risk takers and kind of anti-establishment culture and all of this thing against the man. And now it is the man, you know, the five biggest companies in the world are all on the West coast Four of them. Yeah. But I don't, here. yeah, that the numbers have gotten incomprehensible at this point. There's too many risk takers and too many funders, too many angels, too many venture capitalists. And you get things like Theranos coming out and other things that should not be funded. And I can look back on many of the things that we did uh, that were just too darn early for their time. ETAC. After we got cut loose from Atari, we were prescribed from competing with Atari until 1983. You can't do that. So Nolan started this Catalyst thing in one of the first incubators ever. And one of the companies in there was ETAC, which was founded uh, on a uh, a yacht race across the Pacific. Oh, this is the kind of GPS before GPS. The first, of. the first, it wasn't, not GPS, yeah. It was uh, in-car navigation before GPS existed and using, and with Stan Honey, one of the smartest guys I ever met, nicest guy. Uh, he worked at SRI and he could make anything happen and he and he did. And he, they made this uh, in-car navigating system and it got sold uh, to Rupert Murdoch for about $30 million in less than a week. and uh, What do you mean in less than a week? What happened, Rupert's daughter was living here in the Bay Area and got 
came back from a date really, really late and pissed him off. She said she was lost. So he heard about ETAC and within a week bought the company. <laughs> so she wouldn't get lost, I guess. And, and, uh, uh, and Stan and I were having lunch about a year ago, and he commented that the remains in the patent portfolio they had of ETAC just got sold for the umpteenth time from Sony or whatever for like $2 billion. And we're sitting there like, you know, <laughs> we did all the hard work. And There's this cauldron in Silicon Valley of venture capital and engineers and stuff like that. I remember when in the slot machine business I was in for a while, we revolutionized the slot machine business. And at one point, Bally Gaming, which is different now than Bally in Chicago, in Las Vegas was considered trying to hire me at one point. And I was going to have to move to Vegas, Las Vegas. (laughs) It's it's not going to work. I said, the kind of people that I need aren't going to understand any of the technology. They're not here in Vegas. I said, I can go to any Chinese restaurant at lunchtime around here and swing a cat and catch about two or three of those engineers. They're just, it's just that kind of a, of a place. Any regrets? Any regrets? Yeah, I regret I didn't buy the stock that Steve Jobs, founder stock in Apple, Steve Jobs offered me. I said, I got enough wallpaper, but I'll take a free computer. So I still have the computer, if you'd like to see it. Uh, it's an I'd Apple II, but I could it. have bought a lot more stuff with, the, imagine, founder stock in Apple. Was he asking for investment, or was he actually just... Well, selling stock. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. kind of an investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He needed money. They needed cash. So that's my one regret. Would Life would have been different, but... Hey, your was, life isn't bad though. From that's all, too from bad, all. and I, and 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 the people, and I can I can pull off some very interesting lunches. To this day, it's really fun talking to. I've learned the charm of talking to people that are a lot smarter than you, and can learn from and uh, learn a lot of fascinating stuff. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Al for taking the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you guys found it kind of little interesting jaunt through uh tech history and that's it we're out mic drop for 2020 and thank you all to you for listening and rating and reviewing and telling friends i really appreciate it i really enjoy doing the show and i look forward to what next year brings 2020 so anyhow that is all and i will leave you with this so after al and i had our conversation he made good on his promise and took me out to his garage where he showed me a bunch of just, I mean, it's like the computer history museum is in his garage. He has all kinds of relics. And so I will leave you with that. Digging in the crates of Silicon Valley. Have a fabulous new year. See you in 2020. So here's, here is... I guess this is probably the best exemplar. This is the original Pong. Oh, whoa. Oh my God, do I have batteries in here? Oh, I hope not. There's one of the cases with a wooden... This is a prototype with a yeah. wooden thing. We didn't have a plastic case. This is interesting. This is why I left Atari. This is one of the very few... There's only a dozen prototypes of the Cosmos, a holographic game. And it's a... whole. It's a... Uh, holograph yeah holographic game yeah you do you guys are doing holograms well yeah (laughs) funny story remember i said we couldn't keep a secret right as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot 
is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.